0: second chronicles where i want you to notice again verse 9 where the bible gives a sort of summation of the evil how evil destructive this king manasseh was as the leader of judah so manasseh made judah and in the inhabitants of jerusalem to err and to do worse than the heathen whom the lord had destroyed before the children of israel and that's quite an indictment to say that manasseh made judah and Jerusalem, God's people, to err, get off track, and then to actually do worse than all of the heathen. Think about that worse than the Assyrians? Worse than all of the idolaters and the pagans? Worse than the child sacrificers that God Himself had to destroy? Yes, this man was so wicked and so rebellious that he quite literally used all of his influence, all of his power, and money to undo whatever good and righteous things his father Hezekiah had done before him. So that all of his hatred and all of his rebellion stood against both the heavenly father and his earthly father. Which is why he is almost universally held up as the number one worst king in all of Judah or Israel's history. He's every parent's worst nightmare. Every youth director's biggest horror story every church's deepest wound. Verse 1 says that Manasseh was 12 years old when he took the throne and for the next 55 years all he did, all he did was build idols, shed blood, promote immorality, and defy God. He did everything that Satan's people did but worse. It is no surprise then that when This king is judged, it is a punishment, and it's a humiliation that is almost unimaginable, and yet it fits the crime, it fits the criminal. So much so that in any other medium, any film, any novel, any play, any song, that would be the proper conclusion to the man's story. That would be the perfect ending, except except in this case, that's not the end of the story, and it is not the end of Manasseh. Because, you know, folks, there's something else. There's something else that God wants us to know about the worst and the most wicked king ever to sit upon a throne. And that something is what I want us to consider this morning as we speak on this subject, 50 and 5 years. Look at verse 1 again. Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 50 and five years in Jerusalem. Now note this carefully. 55 years happens to be the longest tenure of any king, either in Israel or in Judah. Longer than David. Longer than Solomon. Longer even than his father Hezekiah, who you may remember, was given an extra 15 years. That is clearly a judgment. Since it was 55 years of darkness and death. Except... Maybe, maybe there's something more to the length of this rain. Maybe, beloved, this long night of darkness has yet another lesson from the heart of God. In fact, and indeed, it does. Let's pray. Father, speak to our hearts, please. Thank you. We've been encouraged, Lord, by the fellowship of your people, the music. Lord, I just pray now that there will be no distractions, that you will help us to hear and to heed your word today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. There are four things I want us to consider this morning in light of this astonishing story that is recorded both here and in 2 Kings 21. It's a story that is so unbelievable and it is so contrary to our way of thinking that, you know, a lot of folks just avoid it altogether. And, of course, included among the reasons to avoid it by so many people is the first lesson in the text, which is, number one, a lesson of darkness. Darkness. It is a lesson of darkness. And by the way, hear this. If you don't first understand this lesson, if we don't first understand and appreciate this, we will completely miss the rest and the, the greatest lesson of all. Notice the last verse of the previous chapter, chapter 32 and verse 33. And Hezekiah slept with his fathers. That's the Old Testament version and New Testament when someone dies. He slept with his fathers and they buried him in the chiefest Of the sepulchers of the sons of David and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem did him honor at his death. And of course, you know why Hezekiah, you know why he was given the best grave sites of David and why they all honored him at his funeral. It's because he was the godliest. This was arguably the most faithful of all of Israel's kings. Hezekiah led Israel into a sweeping revival. That man boldly tore down the idols of Baal and he restored truth and peace and even built an amazing tunnel, as some of you have seen. And so it says what then at the end of verse 22, chapter 33, verse 33, chapter 32. It says, and Manasseh, his son, reigned in his stead. Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign. In other words, follow this. That means that for 12 years, Manasseh grew up in the light and in the blessing of his father's faithfulness. He enjoyed the fruits of a godly life, which is really like a lot of young people right now who take their parents' labors, their parents' fruit and faithfulness, but mock and ridicule the faith of what actually provided that fruit. So what happens next? Verse 1, chapter 33, Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 50 and 5 years in Jerusalem. But he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord, like unto the abominations of the heathen whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. For he built again the high places which Hezekiah his father had broken down. And he reared up altars for Balaam and made groves and worshiped all the host of heaven and served them. You see, folks, the pagans believed that the higher elevations were the best places to put idols and altars and commit their immoral acts. Because they thought, you know, the higher that you go geographically, the closer you are to your deity. The host of heaven is described there in verse 3. That's the stars. That's the constellations that they worshipped as God. And if that wasn't bad enough, look at verse 4. He also built altars in the house of the Lord, whereof the Lord had said, "In Jerusalem shall my name be forever. And he built altars for all the hosts of heaven. There's those stars they worshiped again in the two courts of the house of the Lord. Wow, can you imagine defiling the house of God like this? Manasseh wasn't just running from God. He wasn't just hiding from God. He was defying God. Look at verse 7. And he said a carved image, the idol which he had made in the house of God. Of which God said to David and to Solomon, his son, in this house and in Jerusalem, whom I, which I have chosen before all the tribes of Israel, will I put my name forever? You see, folks, the last part of verse 7 is added there to show that this was a defiance. That this was, in fact, a rebellion, almost daring Jehovah to do anything about it. But it gets worse. Verse 9 again. So Manasseh made Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to err. And to do worse than the heathen. In other words, it's not just that he did it. It says he made. He made others so that he used his position and he used his powers to lead others to do it as well. Which is effectively, folks, the worst sin you can do in the sight of God. Leading others astray is a surefire way of stirring the Father's wrath. And yes, there's a lesson of darkness and it is a lesson to stress the truth that Manasseh was an unbeliever. He was lost and in no way a child of God. A reminder, by the way, that just because your parents know God doesn't mean that you know God. Which brings us to the second lesson of the text. Number one is darkness. Number two, you'll notice there's a lesson of destruction. Look at verse 6. And he caused his children to pass through the fire in the valley of the son of Hinnom. Now, wait a minute. You know what that means, right? Hinnom is the very same word for Gehenna. It's where the Tophet was. That's the altar where child sacrifices took place to the god of Molech. They would burn them. And you know, this is what spiritual darkness always does. It always leads to destruction. Which is why it matters who is in authority. It matters what kind of a parent you are. It matters who's leading the education and the training and the guiding of a people. Look at all of verse 6. And he caused his children to pass through the fire in the valley of the son of Hinnom also. He observed times and used enchantments and used witchcraft and dealt with a familiar spirit. And with wizards, he wrought much evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. Well, there you go. I mean, through witchcraft, deceit, false idols, bloodshed, demons. This one man, Manasseh, wreaked havoc on what used to be, by the way, a place of light and blessing and truth and goodness and joy. So that as far as I'm concerned, this king deserves what's coming to him. He deserves his coming judgment. You know, I've read a couple of biographies of Ronald Reagan, and I do remember in one of them he talked about his first job as a radio announcer in 1934 in Davenport, Iowa. And he said that every day part of his job was to play these sermons from preachers across the Midwest, and they had been been recorded on LP, long play albums, you know, records. And he said it was kind of nice because I could start it, these vinyl albums, and I knew I had at least a 15-minute break, and he said I would go out and drink some coffee or just look at the snowfall and and go outside for a few moments. And he said one night, he put this sermon on, and 15 minutes later when he came back from his break, he realized that the needle got stuck. You know, that happens sometimes. And it kept repeating the exact same phrase, burn in hell, burn in hell, burn in hell. (laughs) Over and over again for 10 or 15 minutes. The next morning he was fired. But not before thousands of Iowans were terrified that God was speaking to them. said a lot of new people came to church that Sunday. Well, maybe Manasseh needed this message. Maybe that's exactly what he needed over and over again. Yeah, except for one thing. And this is unbelievable. Verse 10. And the Lord spake to Manasseh and to his people, but they would not hearken. Wow. After all that he'd done, God in his mercy still spoke to them. God in his grace came down and he spoke. And you talk about sinning against the day of grace. God comes down to Manasseh and to the people, but even then they refused to listen. And so the destruction goes on. Look at the unsurprising result of Manasseh's reign. Verse 20. So Manasseh slept with his fathers. Everybody dies eventually. And they buried him in his own house. And Ammon his son reigned in his stead. And Ammon was two and twenty years old when he began to reign. And he reigned two years in Jerusalem. But he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord, as did Manasseh his father. For Ammon sacrificed. On all the carved images which Manasseh, his father, had made and served them. So there you have all of his evil perpetuated in his own son, the one who was not killed, sacrificed in the valley. Pastor, when is God going to intervene? When is God going to step in all this pain and heartache and destruction and suffering and now war, as we know, on the horizon? Friday after the funeral, I took a picture of the hundreds and hundreds of white crosses there in the World War II and the Vietnam-era sections. And it looked just like the National Cemetery where my dad is buried, and so I sent a picture to my mom. And she responded with one word, peaceful. You know, I hadn't thought of that. And I thought to myself, you know, with hundreds, even thousands of white crosses, if we could see what those people buried in those places, many of them, what they went through. It was the opposite of peace. It was violence and war and bloodshed and fear and pain and noise and almost all of it caused by leaders who were either corrupt up here or corrupt in here. So yes, when will God When will God come down and intervene on the behalf of his people 55 years and now his son? When will he stop this horror show of deceit and destruction and judge Manasseh? Well, that leads us to the third lesson in the text. Number one, a lesson of darkness. Number two, of destruction. Number three, I want you to notice the lesson of deliverance. Verse 11, look at it. Wherefore, the Lord brought upon them the captains of the host of the king of Syria, which took Manasseh among the thorns and bound him with fetters and carried him to Babylon. By the way, I don't know if you know what the thorns and the fetter are described here, but if you've been to the British Museum in London, you may have seen. You may have seen some of the many Assyrian artifacts that show how their kings took their captives, thrust a hook through their nose and their lips and led them about. I remind you that Amos prophesied, Lo, the day will come when he shall lead you away and your posterity with fishhooks. And sure enough, there's a famous engraving of King Hezekiah being tortured and led into Babylon with chains and with hooks. Which brings us to the deliverance. And this is the part of the story that a lot of folks don't understand, don't quite appreciate but only because they don't quite understand nor appreciate the amazing grace and mercy of God. Look at verse 12. And when he, when Manasseh was in affliction, that means torture, he besought the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers and prayed unto him and was entreated of him. And heard his supplication and brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom, then Manasseh knew that the Lord, he was God. Now, wait a minute. You're telling me, Pastor, that this wicked king, you're telling me that this witch seeking, idolatrous, child sacrificing Baal worshiper calls to God after he's tortured, after he's in prison, jailhouse conversion. And God hears him? And not just hears him, he delivers and he restores him? Actually, folks, I'm not saying that. God is. God is telling us that all Manasseh had to do all along was humble himself and pray and turn from all of his wickedness and God would hear him and even forgive him well, pastor, I can't take that. I cannot accept that interpretation. Okay, then what will you do with the promise that God made at the beginning of this book? Can I just remind you that this is 2 Chronicles. And in 2 Chronicles, the same book at the very beginning in chapter 7 is that famous verse, and you know it, verse 14. You'll see it on the screen. If my people which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Do you realize, beloved, that when God makes a promise like this, he means it. But it's not fair, pastor. He lived a wicked life for 55 years. Okay, so did the thief on the cross. So did Saul of Tarsus, who captured and killed innocent Christians. So did the prodigal son for many of his years, whose father welcomed him with open arms. So did demon-possessed Mary Magdalene, who was the first at the empty tomb, and whose name is mentioned in the Gospels more than any of the apostles. Peter, who cursed and swore publicly his denial of Christ. I mean, in how many ways does God have to show us that he is full of mercy and grace and anyone who humbly seeks his favor will find it? There's an amazing text in Daniel 9, verse 9, that says this, To the Lord our God belong mercies and forgivenesses, though we have rebelled against him. There was a pastor just south of here who some time ago told about his, one of his finest men. One of the men who grew up in his church was an elder, a deacon, and now he's aging and he's lying on his deathbed. And although he had been and was a great man of faith, he was also extra sensitive and very humble. So then he started on his deathbed to doubt his worthiness and thus his assurance of heaven. So he asked the pastor and he asked the deacons and some of the elders to come and and to pray with him. He knew that this was a spiritual attack on his faith. They came. They prayed. They shared some scriptures. But it didn't help that much. He still battled these doubts in his mind. A few days went by and then one day he called his pastor up and he said, Preacher, you need to come and see me and bring any elders that you can who were here before. And they came. They surrounded his bed, and again, he's just days away from going into glory, but they immediately noticed this joy and this glow of faith and assurance. And the man said, he said, I want to tell you about a dream I had. I don't know if I was given the dream. He wasn't claiming that it was from God. He just said, I had this dream, and it was so very real. It began with me standing outside of the gates of heaven. And suddenly he said a a horn, a loud blow of a trumpet. And at that moment, a large group of people came walking up and then entered into heaven through that same gate. And the man said, in my dream, I asked an angel who was standing there, who are these people? And the angel said, these are the patriarchs. These are the great Old Testament saints. And the man said, I began to weep. And I, I told the angel, I can't go in with them. And then there was another horn. And another crowd comes, and it's the prophets, and it's the priests, and he says to the angel, I can't, I can't go in with them. And then another horn, which brings in another crowd, and it's the apostles and the martyrs, the angel explains, and he says, I can't, I can't enter in with them, and he begins to weep because it's one horn after another. Finally, a horn blows, and it's Manasseh. And he walks to the gate of heaven and the angel says, how about him? Can you not go in with him? And the man told his friends at that moment, I woke up and I shouted to myself, yes, I can go in with him. And he looked at his pastor and his friends and he said, men, I have full assurance. I saw Manasseh and Rahab and Saul and the thief and everyone else. All of them went in only because of the blood of Jesus. And yes, all of us in this room. We only get in by the blood. I was in awe last year when I was looking at the stunning photos of that discovered ship Endurance. And if you want to see something amazing, just Google Endurance and Shackleford and the Discovery last year. It sat undisturbed ever since it sank in 1915. It was on an expedition down there, another one because Shackelford was, was sort of obsessed with the Antarctic. And while it was down there, it sank. And you know, as I looked at the pictures, I remembered a story. How Lord Shackelford would, he had this task each week. He would, included sort of uh, measuring the sea depths nearest the icy shores. And the way they did that was each week they would drop a plummet overboard and let it fall until it hit bottom. And at that point, they would measure the line and he would go in and record it in his log. This was a regular task until one day it dropped and it dropped and it never hit bottom. So he ordered for some rope, some kind of line to be, to be tied and attached and, and weighted and to drop it with it until and it, it hit the ground. And so they dropped the plummet. The only problem is it went down and down and down and it never hit bottom. He had his men go anywhere in the ship and find some more and, and drop it. And finally he ran out of additional line, but he dropped it one more time and it never hit bottom. He asked for the measurement as far as it was and then he wrote the number of that measurement in the ledger and the log. But under the number he wrote these words deeper than that. There's a hymn that says this. Through all the depths of sin and loss drops the plummet of the cross. Never yet abyss was found deeper than the cross could sound. Hey folks, Write down Manasseh's sins. I mean, God lists them all. He lists them in his word. And it is a deep, deep abyss. But go ahead and write next to it with the atoning blood of Jesus the words deeper than that. I was witnessing to a man last week, some of you know, and he couldn't grasp how the omnipotent creator would ever be involved or concerned with his life and his deeds in his mind is just it's just too big of a gap it's too vast he thought between he and god and so i thought of a text but only let him read the first part it was first corinthians 4 6 and you know you gotta put your finger over it and that part says for god who commanded the light to shine out of darkness well there's the creator Brother Terry literally sang about this moments ago. There's the great, vast God of the universe, the omniscience of God, who only spoke. He spoke, and darkness was turned to light. I said He is a great and eternal God. But here's the rest of the verse. For God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness has shined in our hearts. That's one heart. That's you. Has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You cannot get any more personal than the face, face to face. The same God who created the sun and the stars and the moon and the planets and all of it, the same God who did that light with his voice can shine down in your sinful heart and dispel the darkness. It explains Manasseh. It explains all of us. same all-powerful God who said, let there be light, came down to his dark soul and said, let there be light and life in a man's heart. Which brings me quickly and briefly to the final lesson. Number one, darkness. Number two, destruction. Number three, deliverance. And then number four, there is a lesson of devotion. Look at verse 15. It says, Manasseh took away the strange gods and the idol out of the house of the Lord and all the altars that he had built in the mount of the house of the Lord and in Jerusalem and cast them out of the city. And he repaired the altar of the Lord and sacrificed thereon peace offerings. That's in the law and thank offerings and commanded Judah to serve the Lord God of Israel king manasseh after all those years of darkness a changed man i can't explain that nobody can i can't explain saul who persecuted christians as far who wanted letters give me another letter i want some more i want to arrest as many women and children as i possibly can I'm going to hold the coats of people that are stoning Stephen, one of the sweetest, godliest men ever on the face of the earth. I'm going to watch him die while I sign the papers. I can't explain Saul. Writing 14 books of the New Testament, becoming the missionary. This man Manasseh is a man devoted not to himself anymore. Certainly not to idols, but to the true God. The true God. One of the things I like to do when I travel with Ben, and I did it just last week. If we're in a hotel room and I want to watch the message that I may have missed, I go on YouTube, on the TV there. And you search Beacon Baptist Church. And when you go to the search, you see, if it's on Monday, you'll see people had this mass and that St. Peter's mass and so on. And then there's some goofy YouTube thing or whatever. But I love to go Beacon Baptist Church, Jupiter, Florida, because I know it's going to be on there when the next person comes in. And maybe the screen will be frozen where I'm saying, Vernon Hill, I don't know, something like that. <laughs> <laughs> but I do, I often think to myself, and I pray, I say, Lord, use it, because somebody's going to come here tomorrow or the next day. And they're going to search YouTube and Beacon Baptist Church, Jupiter's going to come on and just maybe they will hear the word of God, the grace of God. Maybe they will hear this message where we stayed last time or in Orlando or wherever. One thing I know for sure Is you've heard the word of God this morning. This is who God is. When he comes to reveal himself, he says in his word, I am the God of mercy. I am the God of loving kindness. He is a holy God, as we sang a moment ago. He will not excuse your sin. You cannot earn your way to heaven. You'll never be good enough. But you can go in with this man through the blood of Jesus. But once you do, Manasseh became a man of devotion. What this society needs, what this town needs are Christians who walk out of those doors because they've been delivered from sin, the power of darkness, the light is shined in their hearts, they walk out of those doors and they live the Christian life. Devoted to Christ because of what he's done for you. Our heads are bowed, please, and our eyes are closed for just a moment. I wonder who would say this morning, Pastor Blalock, I'm here today. and I'm a child of God, I'm already a Christian, I've been saved by His mercy and His grace but I needed this message as a believer today I needed these reminders you know there's nobody there is literally nobody outside the reach of God's saving power nobody if Manasseh can be saved, you can be saved Someone called the church about four weeks ago and, and the whole conversation was about, I, I, I don't think I can do it. I'm not good enough. I've done, you don't understand, Pastor. I've done so many. If you knew the things I did, he started listing a few. If you knew how bad I was, I had already started preparing for this message. And I thought to myself, Manasseh called. He doesn't think he's good enough to be forgiven. He thinks he's too bad. The blood of Jesus is power to save and to save you to the uttermost of those who come to him. And if you've been saved, it is your duty and your calling to demonstrate that salvation with devotion. It's who you are and it's what you are. Pastor, I'm here today and I'm saved, but I needed this message. Who would say that? Would you lift your hands through the building as Christians and amen? Yes. Obviously, in a group this size, there will be some. And watching live stream, some. Some who have yet to come to Jesus for salvation, trusting him alone as your Lord and Savior. He's ready. Look at Manasseh. Yes, he was in jail. Yes, he was being tortured. But when he called out, that's the lesson we learned recently on Wednesday nights. When he calls, when you call, a sinner calls, God hears. And if you're here today and you're not sure about your salvation, today is the day of salvation. Pastor Black, that's me. I don't know. I'm not going to come down and embarrass you. I wouldn't do that, but I would love to pray for you. I don't know for sure. My sins are forgiven. My name's in heaven, but could I, could you ask me to pray for me that I could know? And all of the people in this room who are saved will pray as well. They don't need to see who you are. They know. Who would say that? Would you lift your hands through the building? God bless you. God bless you, young lady. Anyone else? Amen. We're going to sing in a moment a hymn of invitation, and as we sing it together, I hope that Whatever the Holy Spirit speaking to your heart about, you'll obey his voice. Right there, even. Brother Andy will be at the front. I can be at the front to meet you if you need to pray with someone. It may be a public decision, joining the church, a baptism. But maybe I need to be saved. I want to be saved. And you don't want to wait any longer. Come forward. We'd love to take the Bible and show you how to be. Father, bless now the invitation. We do thank you for your word. As always, Lord, thank you for your faithfulness, your goodness, your holiness, your righteousness. And thank you in the midst of all of it for your mercy, your long-suffering that we know, we know, Lord, today is only possible and available to sinners because of the sacrifice of your Son. It avails. And it avails those who humble themselves and seek you. May folks in this room do it asked for prayer, please, in Jesus' name. Amen.